0: Welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series podcast brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Caleb Covell from PennShop talking about surgical management of erectile dysfunction. Um, My name is Ruchika Talwar. I'm a PGY3 resident at the University of Pennsylvania. I'll be moderating today's lecture on surgical management of ED by uh, Dr. Caleb Covell. A few housekeeping issues just before we get started. We've built in a few questions into today's lecture. Um, To answer these, please use the raise hand feature on Zoom and we'll make sure you're unmuted. Or alternatively, you can type the answer into the chat screen. We'd like to give everyone a chance to jump in and make this interactive beyond just checking off a multiple choice option. At the end of the lecture, we'll also be answering questions that are posted in the Q&A chat box and any unanswered questions will be posted online. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Caleb Covell. After finishing his residency here at Penn Urology, he completed a fellowship at Wake Forest in reconstructive urology and GU trauma before returning back as an attending. He currently serves as the medical student clerkship director and our associate program director. He's also the 2019 winner of the AUA National Teaching Award. Without further ado, Dr. Covell.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Thawar, um, for that very kind introduction. Uh, it's a pleasure to meet everybody who's here. I apologize. This is something completely new to me, so forgive any any hiccups. Um, I also want to thank uh, Lindsay Hampton and the team out at UCSF, as well as all the co-collaborators for starting this, this initiative. Um, really great program that has been put together, and I know our residents and everyone else seems to really love it. Um, also, it's just a real honor to take part in this, so thank you for inviting us. Um, today, I have been privileged to be asked to talk about surgical management of erectile dysfunction. Um, let me see if I could advance here. Good. Um, I have no disclosures, um, other than the disclaimer that I don't usually look like this. My beard has been shaven for uh, for the COVID crisis, and my hair is a lot longer than it usually is, but uh, no financial disclosures. Um, so, here's a basic overview of the talk. Um, again, for everybody who has been here for these lectures, um, these are going to be more of a 10,000-foot overview. Um, for anyone who is familiar with surgical management of ED, many of these slides or even some of the lines are the topic of entire conferences or long debates. So I I don't intend for this to be comprehensive in any way, but basically to introduce you to the topic. I know that there's a wide range of people watching from medical students up to senior residents and maybe even beyond. So um, not everything will probably be at your level, but I tried to keep it fairly basic, but keep a few introductory and uh, challenging topics in there for the people who have done a little bit more of this as well. Um, so, again, kind of to get into the, the meat of the material, um, just to go over a background of penile prostheses. I thought these pictures were kind of cool, so I wanted to include a little bit of history for you too. Um, penile prostheses have been around at least since the 16th century, um, trying to replace function of the penis in terms of you know, its urinary conduit function and sexual health has been a long-standing issue for men and scientists and everybody else out there. So, uh, Dr. Paré is credited with the first prosthesis, um, which was made out of a wooden pipe to try to help a man with a penile amputation urinate. And all the way through, you know, people have been working on different designs up to the modern penile prosthesis surgery, which was basically started in 1973 by F. Brantley Scott and pulled uh, from his original picture, um, which you can probably see over here on the right side of the screen, um, the original d- design, which almost 50 years later looks a heck of a lot similar to what, what it does now. And then you have the semi-rigid devices, which basically started with Dr. Small and Dr. Carrion and have continued on to this day so just let's go back to the patients a little bit and how we work them up and you know how we talk to them so as everybody in this room knows you know urologists and aspiring medical students sexual health is a really sensitive subject Um, people are sometimes remiss to tell you a lot of details about what's going on until they trust you people are also weary when you start talking to them about options such as penile injections or surgeries to put something into their penis and that's not always something that comes easily to a lot of them in terms of acceptance so this is something that for many people you know, will require a trusting relationship, good discussion and good workup. Um, many of us think of this as a progression, starting with things like oral medications and working up to, you know, injections, vacuum devices, other things that you're gonna hear a lot about during this lecture series, and then onto penile prosthesis as a final option. But I would encourage you to, to discuss these and bring all of these options up from the start. Um, There's not necessarily a a need to fail every other option before, Um, and your whole goal is to match the patient with the best treatment option for him and for his situation. And that may be, you know, thinking about something like a penile prosthesis earlier. It also gives the guy a chance to start thinking about it and accepting that as a potential option um, earlier on rather than waiting until later in the discussion. So again, I I won't cover all of this, um, but I wanted to make sure everybody knew um, clinical history and, and history taking is really important when it comes to sexual health and when it comes even to the idea of surgical management. Um, I will repeat this multiple times, but patient goals and patient expectations are some of the biggest things when it comes to these quality of life surgeries in terms of how they're going to report whether they're happy, satisfied, and what their quality of life is after. So one of the initial things you need to get at is why the guy is, you know, deciding to move forward with any of these therapies, why he's deciding to move forward with things like surgery for this. You know, is it because he wants his confidence back, you know, to help him feel more veer out, to help satisfy his partner, or does he have unrealistic expectations, things like it's going to improve his length or make him a Superman? All of these will, will sort of set your idea of how you counsel the guy and what you tell him. You do want to talk a little about previous ED treatment, so you can go over some of the other options, as well as, especially in a guy who's having, um, or who has had a prostatectomy in the past or any other pelvic surgeries, any voiding or continence issues that you may want to address at the same time or even before you consider a penile prosthesis or any other surgical options. Um, Lots of different things to talk about in terms of medical, surgical, social history. Um, Again, we won't get into all of these, but, you know, just for example, if a guy's had a prostatectomy or a cystectomy, some sort of radical pelvic surgery may change the way that you look at um, the surgery itself or the way you plan it. Inguinal hernia repairs may change where you place a reservoir or how you place them. Their medications, such as immunosuppression or anticoagulation, also may change, you know, the timing of the surgery or what you counsel the guy on in terms of risk. So lots of things to talk about before. When it comes to penile prosthesis, um, you know, physical exam actually is important. So I don't think that's necessarily true in everything we do urologically, but when it comes to considering putting a penile prosthesis in it, it, it certainly is. Again, this is not an extensive list, but you're gonna look at things like the guy's stretched penile length to counsel him on the size of the device you can put in. You're gonna feel for things like scarring or Peroni's plaques that may you know, change how you approach the, the surgery. You may feel for things like hydrocele or spermatocele, which may limit the guy's ability to feel a pump or where you'll place the pump as well as looking at things like his dexterity. There's nothing more frustrating than putting in a penile prosthesis, and it pumps perfectly to you, but the guy can't quite use his hands or squeeze it well enough. So even though we're, we're moving more to the idea of telemedicines and video visits, um, there still is definitively a place for physical exam in these guys. Um, when it comes to additional workup, fortunately for surgical management of ED, there's usually not a lot that's necessary. Um, I rarely find that pre-op imaging is particularly helpful. I know that some of my colleagues do use penile duplex ultrasounds more often, Um, I will use that if there is a guy with Peronis disease and I need to look more at his plaque to figure out what's going on, or in a younger guy or a guy with trauma that we'll get into later in this talk that you suspect arterial insufficiency or veno-occlusive disease, something where it may change your surgical approach to some degree. Also, more complex imaging like MRIs, CTs, um, arteriographies, you know, I would only consider those in special cases. Um, I think sometimes if a patient's coming to you that you don't necessarily know his anatomy or you don't necessarily know his surgical history. Sometimes it can be helpful to find rear trip, tip extenders, look for buckling, look for aneurysms, that kind of stuff. Um, As as far as lab work goes, besides the basic lab work, um, you know, if you have a diabetic patient, which is fairly common in guys with ED, um, making sure his diabetes is well controlled is is certainly paramount. Um, You know, there is a, a big debate about using hemoglobin A1C cutoffs and how important that is. I still usually do use them, at least for the patient to show me that they're working on their diabetes and it's not uncontrolled. Um, a urine culture is important. We have very few AUA guidelines when it comes to surgical management of ED, but making sure that they have negative cultures and no signs of infection is one of them. And then optimizing any risk factors is definitely as well. Again, I know I'm, I'm hitting this over, but adaptation management is key here. You know, when it comes to quality of life surgery, nobody is going to let you hide behind the fact that you got their cancer out. So if you are off, even if it is a perfect looking prosthesis after, if it is not what the guy expects, Um, He may still report that he's unhappy with it. So having those discussions early is important. I always talk to guys about what the device will improve. And if, you know, if everything goes well, certainly their erection should be better and firmer and more usable for intercourse. And for most guys, spontaneity will be way better. A lot of the other options like um, medications, oral medications, um, injections all require a fair amount of time before, but with these, usually guys can just pump them up and be ready to go. It's equally important to talk to them about what may not improve. So for a guy who's had a prostatectomy and does not have ejaculation or has an or you know or a guy with poor sensation for some other reason, their ejaculation, orgasm, and sensation will likely not improve or get worse. Now again, there is a big psychological component to erectile dysfunction, so some of those may get better just from the guy having more confidence. And we'll get a little more into length and girth, but again, those tend to get worse after the procedure rather than better, again to various degrees. Um, when it comes to counseling, again, picking the right patients from our side is also really important, and talking to them pre-op about things for expectations, you know, again, goes hand-in-hand hand with that. So, again, just a couple things that always get brought up. It's a small incision, but this is going to hurt for a while. It's not the incision that really hurts, but it's the, the body's getting used to the device that's in there and the inflammatory reaction that it builds to having a forward material in a sensitive area. We'll get into length and girth a little bit more, but again, those are big concerns for a lot of guys, especially guys with ED. Um, And again for a lot of guys this takes a while to break in I always tell guys It's like breaking in a baseball glove the first 10 15 or 100 times they pump the pump It's gonna feel a little stiff and a little challenging And if you let them know that earlier, there's less frustration when that becomes the case or whenever they come back to the office And again for many, you know, they tie erections into everything else in the sexual process Um, But if they just pump up and start going, you know, they, they skip a lot of those things with stimulation all of those other nerve pathways may lead them to orgasm. So again, they still have a lot of other things that have to go along with the prosthesis for them to have a, a satisfying sexual response. So just to address length a little bit, um, for many men, they have lost length with long-standing ED and atrophy. This is certainly the case in our prostatectomy patients, but with everyone. Um, I always tell my residents that um, guys tend to a little bit be heroes in their own mind. They tend to remember what they were at 18 or 50, not what they were at 70 after multiple surgeries. And this is even more the case in guys with obesity that have a big belly that's kind of pushing things over. So, again, this is where we really do use stretch penile length, pulling that out, making sure guys, you know, at least to some degree, understand what that means and what the expectation will be for size afterwards. There is some evidence that using a VED or traction device may help with this. This is a nice picture from one of Dr. Wilson's original papers of guys using regularly a VED before a vacuum device. Um, and essentially seeing a stretch over time. There's even been a randomized trial after that does show a little bit of a difference in guys who use them and don't and hadn't used them, um, albeit, you know, its clinical significance is still up for debate. So some things you can at least talk to guys about before. So again, I presume most of the people in this room are at least somewhat familiar with the different models out there, but just to bring them up, again, for guys that are malleable devices or what you may hear is semi-rigid rod That's on the top left here. There are inflatable devices, then, both two- and three-piece devices. The two-piece device is only made by AMS or Boston Scientific. That's called the Ambicore device, and the three-piece devices, which are the most common for most of us who are putting these in they're on the bottom. So, again, it's a hydraulic system, all self-contained. It comes with the cylinders that go into the penis, the control pump that goes down in the scrotum, and the reservoir that generally goes in the pelvis somewhere that we'll talk about a little more later. Um, For the three-piece devices, there are two companies in this country that are making them and that we're using regularly. Um, There are the... Um, AMS and Boston Scientific 700 models, just to give you a basic overview, there are three different types within those models that we use commonly. The LGX, which has both length and girth expansion to some degree, the CX that only has girth expansion but has a little more rigidity, and the CXR, which is a narrower base only with a little girth expansion. Um, Both of these companies do have different pumps as well and differences between them. Anybody who's put them in or used them knows that different patients have different degrees of difficulty with pumping them up and taking them down. Coloplast, the other company, also makes several models. The Titan, which has girth expansion, and that girth expansion increases with length, as well as the Titan narrow, which also has increasing girth expansion with increasing length. And again, both of these companies now make tubing that is proportional to the size of the cylinders to make sure that that can be put down in the dependent portion of the scrotum. And then on the far right, you can see the different reservoir shapes for either of them. In the body, these tend to flatten out, but both of them do make a low-profile reservoir, as well as AMS making a more spherical reservoir. Um, so again, I, I think a lot of people are familiar with the surgeries and again one thing we can never do in lecture is really go through You know all the key steps and recapitulate all of the OR But just to put one slide of the key steps that are out there um, on the right You can see a penis approach Where essentially you're going down and you're exposing the corpora bilaterally, whatever approach you use that's important people end up making uh, longitudinal corporatomy that again and In for we try to keep more bear the tubing um, then corporal dilation, which can be again done in a million different ways, you know, whether you use Brooks dilators, Hagar dilators, or in a virgin case just past the furlough tool. But the idea is to create a space both proximally and distally to allow the passage of the cylinders. We tend to go out lateral on those as we're doing the dilation and get all the way up into the mid gland. Um, we then measure corporal length, select the appropriate device to the patient in the length, and then create a space for the reservoir. Um, the, the traditional way for this was to create one in the space of retius which generally involved using your fingers, or a curved, malleable to pierce the transversalis, either through the inguinal ring or behind the pubic tubercle to create a space right behind where the bladder is. Um, again, in the last decade or so, or since 2013, people have been using more ectopic approaches, which we can argue about the, the name of, but basically these are submuscular um, for guys that have had extensive pelvic surgery or other issues to hide that reservoir somewhere else. And then putting the pump in a, an easily accessible location within the scrotum, um, depending you know, on the guy's... Um, the guy's preferences, you may hide that more posteriorly or not, but an area that he'll be able to feel and easily pump. Um, again, in talking about surgical expr- approaches, um, there's two very common ones that people use. The penoscrotal one, which is one that, that I tend to use a lot, is basically making an incision transversely, one finger breadth below the penoscrotal junction. You can go longitudinally as well, especially if you think that you'll need to it, extend it up the penile shaft. The incision is hidden with that. Um, it's easy exposure to the corpora. There is an easy way to fix the pump because you're right next to the scrotum where you're going to put it. But the downside is the reservoir placement is blind and more challenging, and that is one of the tougher areas of the case with that. The infrapubic approach, which is also favored by many, um, is similar, except you're making the incision above the level of the penopubic junction. Um, It's definitely an easier approach for reservoir placement and less blind. Um, It can be a little more challenging, however, to fix the pump in the scrotum, and, you know, theoretically there's a little higher risk of the dorsal dorsal nerves because you're on the dorsal side. But again, for most experienced implanters, that would rarely happen. There are a few alternative approaches that are worth mentioning. Um, The subcoronal approach, which people do use sometimes with a malleable penile prosthesis, um, where you essentially make it in a near circumcising or just below the corona. Um, It's probably easier to place malleable type devices, as anyone who has put in a malleable device through a penis scrotal approach can attest to. Um, The downsides are there are less coverage layers, so even though the dilation is easier and it's easier to get the device down, you get a little less tissue to put on. One of the advantages, however, is you're not in the scrotum or the prepubic area where you're creating more space for hematoma. And the other alternative is a circumcising incision. Um, This would be basically to declove the penis, drop the skin down, and then um, essentially to put the whole device in that way. That's generally more helpful if you need to do extensive work on the penile shaft for concomitant Perone's procedures. Um, So just a, a word about some of the different things that we see in this are different um, subtleties of the device placement. Um, I think reservoir placement deserves an extra quick discussion. Um, so again, this is the, the initial drawing from Dr. Morey's group who pioneered this technique. But the idea is for men with extensive pelvic surgeries, and you can argue, you know, now with the, the advent of robotic prostatectomies, people who have APRs or neobladders, that this is probably a safer approach in some ways because that space of retius has been obliterated. It essentially involves either going through the inguinal ring or creating a space um, traditionally, above the level of the transversalis and behind the rectus, but you can also even put it behind the transversalis as well, and to place a low-profile reservoir, either the concealed or the clover leaf, into that area so that it flattens out behind a person. A skinny guy can certainly feel this at times, but um, in the studies that they've done in follow-up, most guys won't, and most guys are pretty happy. Um, he did do a cool video, if anybody's ever had a chance to see it, where they looked in um, at the time of a robotic procedure. And whenever these devices fill you can actually see the reservoir filling and deforming downward on the peritoneum so it doesn't deform upward usually as much and guys tend not to feel it a lot so a a good technique to know in your back pocket and some people use it for almost every placement anyway Um, one of the most feared things that we talk about is infection so we'll get into some of the other complications later but i thought this was one to bring up early Um, historically that's been about one to eight percent of implants and if you talk to some primary care doctors they still believe that it's much higher even up to 25 or 50 percent um, with modern theories, that's been way down, you know, for many under 1%, you know, maybe closer to 2 to 3% in diabetic guys. Um, certainly higher in things like redo surgeries, extensive repairs for peronies priapism, hospitalized folks. Um, but the, the manufacturers of these manufacturers of these device have done a lot to try to cut these down. Um, I put both of the different companies um, things on here. On the left, you can see the one from AMS and Boston Scientific. Um, that is coated with the inhibizone coating. With a, which for everybody is rifampin and minocycline. It turns the, the entirety of this device sort of a yellowish-orangeish color. Um, for the coloplast device, they do a hydrophilic coating, so it's not really coated with antibiotics, but it has a slicker area that bacteria are supposed to be less adherent to. You can also do antibiotic dips. So for those of you who have put these in, you know it's not usually blue, but this was a slick little experiment where they dipped it in methylene blue to show the uptake. Um, and again, that's probably similar uptake for what you see in terms of antibiotics on these. So again, lots and lots of infection control, control strategies. Um, many of these are a little bit voodoo. We have very little evidence, especially level one evidence, but um, we're all pretty protective of the voodoo we do. Um, when it comes to, to all of this, high alcohol-based base preps and perioperative antibiotics are probably the most um, studied ones. The ones we have level one evidence for are the high alcohol-based prep, so you don't have to worry about using things like chloroprep and duraprep around the penis. It's totally okay. Um, I put the AUA antibiotic guideline statement up here, which is basically either a cephalosporin or vancomycin and gentamicin, although some recent studies, again, have called this into question based on different um, organisms that they've cultured, considering other things like zosyn, and especially for people who are at higher risk, people with diabetes, Peyronie's cases, Reduce, um, the idea of fungal coverage, something like a, a fluconazole might be very important too, to, to consider adding. Um, when it comes to perioperative management, again, the general recommendation is 24 hours of antibiotics, but a lot of people use longer regimens, five to 14 days, again, just because of concern and lack of great evidence otherwise. Um, lots of people are talking about different perioperative pain control management. Again, one of the toughest things with these cases are guys do get swelling and pain. A um, little shout out I saw Jake Lucas on here, who's um, one of our other Philadelphia residents, and my buddy Jay Simhan, who uh, this is the pain regimen he used that he's been studying that seems to work pretty well. Um, you can consider whether you need a fully catheter or not. For guys that have no catheter after, there is a relatively high rate of retention with this. So most people will leave it for one night, take it out the next day. And one of the big things is trying to minimize hematomas because those things do seem to lead to more infections. So people will leave devices inflated for a period of time to try to compress the corpora or cause um, some tamponade. Mummy wraps are a popular way that people deal with this and even post-op drains. So again, everybody has their different strategies, but again, trying to carefully minimize hematomas. And then postoperatively, most of us will have them start cycling the device between four and six weeks after allowing time for the corporatomy to heal. Usually by about six weeks, they can get back to sexual function. Um, generally, after they get to that point, we will aggressively have them cycle their device, um, you know, one, so they can get used to using it and breaking it in, The two, so that early on during the healing process, the capsule doesn't form and constrict around the, the um, cylinders, causing a limitation of how much it expands. Uh, but early on, really consider the idea of getting these guys hooked in with good sex or relationship therapies. Um, again, for many of them, they, they and their partners have not been sexually active you know, to this degree in some point, and so jumping right back into it can be a challenge for everyone. So let them know that, again, there is more to the sexual response than just the device in creating erections. Um, outcomes with penile prosthesis tend to be good. Almost all studies you know, report somewhere in the 90s to high 90s. Uh, this was a relatively recent study out of Turkey that if you combine satisfied and very satisfied, especially with a three-piece device, you're talking about 98% satisfaction. But again, you know, it's still even pretty good with the malleables where it's, where it's approaching 90% or so. Um, and again, overall, these devices tend to be durable on average lasting between about 7 to 10 years before they need a revision. Um, unfortunately, anytime you put a prosthesis in someone, there are complications. We already talked about erections, but here are a few different pictures of some of the other things that can happen. Um, erosion and extrusion you'll see both in the early and late um, period where the device finds its way across into the urethra. Um, you can see aneurysms, you can see outpouchings, you can see high riding pumps, long-term pain issues, and then early on one of the things certainly to know about is the idea of glands ischemia, where the gland starts to look dusky and black from vascular compromise, um, certainly a surgical emergency that you would take the device out and be wary of. Um, so again, that's um, sort of the basics that I wanted to hit on in terms of the device and kind of, you know, things around it. Now I want to get a little bit more into some of the challenges you, that you may see with this, um, different kinds of difficult situations such as priapism, peronies, or a neophallus, and then some of the things you might see that are interoperative or that somebody may send you later um, that, again, are a little more challenging so that we can build up your surgical toolkit um, if you do decide to do these cases. So the first one I wanted to talk about was the idea of infections and salvage procedures. So again, we had talked earlier about um, penile prosthesis infections, unfortunately not being 0%, even with all the things we're doing nowadays. So when guys do come back with an infection or with a suspected infection, the question is always what to do. So the traditional way of dealing with this has always been device removal with delayed reimplantation, And in the past, that would usually be in the three to six month range. Now people have talked about moving that up you know, even further, maybe to six weeks or eight weeks out, depending on how bad the infection is and how they're healing. Um, the downside about that is, whenever you take the device out, there does tend to be a pretty robust inflammatory response and scarring response um, where a patient will get fibrosis, they can lose a lot of length and girth, and the reimplantation can be significantly more difficult. And over the years, that's led to the idea of people using more and more the idea of a salvage prosthesis placement. Um, so if you look at the graph on the right, which is a really nice study, um, it essentially shows that, guys, if you can get a device back in, um, that it does tend to preserve their length better. Now, again, the downside of that is, you're putting a prosthesis back in an infected field, which all of us have been taught for many years is a no-no. So certainly there are a little bit higher rates of infection with that rather than taking it out and putting it in a delayed fashion. But again, the trade-off is potentially gaining or at least preserving some length and girth. Um, Here's a a nice summary article on their key table of some of the bigger series that have been around since the the mid-90s. Again, one of the big things with Savage Procedures is patient selection. So again, in patients that have early infections with more virulent organisms, people that have erosions or extrusion through the skin or the urethra, people that are frankly septic, those are people you want to take the device out, wash everything out, put some drains, call it a day, and come back later. Um, many, many of us have said that for frank purulence too, especially in the early side if somebody has an infection early on, that again, it's probably with a nastier bug and you don't want to put something right back in just to get it infected. But some people have tried it and had, had some success even with purulence. But um, in the well-selected patient, especially in more modern series, um, these have approached 93% in terms of lack of infection afterwards, which is, again, very similar to what you would see in a delayed re-implant. And if you can preserve that length and girth and the guy doesn't like the malleable prosthesis, even though it would be another procedure, sometime between 3 and 12 months later, you can always come back and convert him over to an IPP. So, again, just to touch base a little about the details of a salvage procedure, again, it's sort of what you expect. Um, If you're going to go in, you have to remove all of the components that are in there. That includes the the reservoir, which sometimes can be a little tricky. Get all the foreign material out that may have a biofilm or may have an infection. And then basically swab and aspirate, you know, to to look for what organism it is that will later guide your antibiotic choice. Um, There will be copious irrigations that you'll use of all the sites. On the next slide, we'll get into a little about the traditional ones of this. Um, Nobody has really decided what is best, but um, certainly ones that people use. After that is all out and washed out, you know, take everything down, redrape, regown, reglove, gown get new instruments, and then put in a new device. At that point, most of the time, people will consider putting in a malleable prosthesis uh, with the idea that it's a little simpler and you don't have to go into the scrotum or any of the other cavities. Um, close the wounds, put in temporary drains. And in these cases, you certainly want to use antibiotics because you know an infection is there. Um, again, I just thought this would be interesting for everyone to see. This is the classic Mulcahy washout, which is the original one that people use and still talk about with the salvage, um, where he used seven different solutions of varying different types. Um, Again, even if you talk to Dr. Mulcahy, not a whole lot of evidence behind this. It was what he had available and what he thought would work. Um, So nowadays we realize that things like half-strength hydrogen peroxide are are cytotoxic and maybe doing more harm than good. Even half-strength iodine or betadine, you know, maybe should be cut down a little more even though they have good antibacterial properties. And again, the big thing is probably just really washing things out either with saline or good antibiotic solution, whether it's pressurized or not, to really break up that biofilm and get rid of those antibiotics. So again, let's talk about some of the, uh, the other situations that we may see. So one of the, the common things that you may see is um, difficult dilation. So again, for whatever reason, whether it was from infection and in a device that had to be taken out, um, whether it was from priapism or an intracavernosal plaque, even sometimes you'll see it in guys that use extensive corporal injections, um, you can see a lot of corporal fibrosis and scarring. That can make dilating distally very difficult. Um, and in some cases, that can fill the entirety of the corpora. Um, I really like this picture. It's from one of the early ones by Dr. Montague of essentially an entire wedge filling the corpora of SCAR. And again, for anybody who's been in a case like these, these are really challenging. You know, taking that out, creating a good corpora to keep the device in um, can, be, can be tough. So even though these are usually pretty straightforward cases, these ones are not. And then proximately, um, we've all been in situations where you'll see a corporal step off or ledge where the proximal dilation is difficult or passing the device in is, is difficult. And all of those can lead to, to more challenging situations. So if you are having difficulty with dilation, lots of different techniques you can use. Um, serial dilation is one of them, so while most of us will start with a bigger dilator to try to minimize pressure we're putting on, these are cases where you may go to a smaller Brooks or a smaller Hagar to, to start that space and then dilate it up. When there is extensive sc- scar, you may consider using cabinet i I put the two most common ones that I've seen on here. The top is the Roselio that has back cutting grooves, so you go in and sort of use it like a wood cutter to scrape things out or the UreMix, which you use in more of a side-to-side or, at, you know, rotational way to, again, cut out scar. But some people have talked about using drills or Otis urethrotomes to essentially break or cut that scar, or even things like 12 blades, which look like a sickle. Um, when it's an entire plug of scar, sometimes you'll either need to drill that out or you'll need to excavate. You'll need to go and cut that out from around the entirety of the corpora. And at times, you can only make so much space. So whenever there's a lot of fibrosis so the corpora won't expand, those are times that you may consider a narrow-based device. And again, never, never hesitate if you need it to make a counter incision to give yourself more traction and a better way for dilation. So again, whenever you reach those, that does lead to a number of stickier interop situations. So one of them is distal crossover that people may see. So again, as, as people probably know, if you're familiar with the penile anatomy, the midline septum between the two corpora is fenestrated. It tends to be delicate and, you know, not that hard to pass through. So if the dilation is difficult or you're not staying lateral, it's not terribly hard to pass over, you know, and go from one side to the other. You should suspect that whenever, you know, both sides don't go up to the mid gland Or if you don't see it at at first, if you go in and put the device in and it's an odd angle or a funny erection, you know, suspect that something has gone on. Um, I always tell people you should never leave the operating room unless you can feel both sides in the mid gland It's a sign to you that something's off. You know, so on the right, there's a a picture of how you manage this. Again, this is not a surgical emergency. Place a dilator in the non-cropped over side. Leave it there. Use it as your guidepost. And then re-dilate the other side with that in place. Again, if you need to or if you've lost the right track, sometimes this will require a counter incision for you to go down, find the area where you veered off, and to, to create the space beyond that. Um, proximally, you tend not to see crossovers as much, although that can happen. On your proximal dilation, the more common thing you may see is what's called perforation, where, again, if you look at this bottom picture from Campbell's, um, again, just being familiar with the cruce of the corpora, it tends to go down and insert on the ischiopubic ramus. Again, if you haven't you know, followed the right path towards the ipsilateral knee, you can poke through the bottom part of that corpora, and when that happens, you find yourself in the perineum. So again, suspect that whenever you um, feel you're not bouncing like you normally do on the bone, or whenever you're much further down. The picture on the left here is what's called the field goal test, where they're both symmetric and the same length. On the right is a nice picture where essentially one is much further down, and um, whenever that happens, when your lengths are asymmetric, suspect that you may have perforated. Um, So generally, when that happens, you again try to recapture the right area, If it's really bad, you can consider going down into the perineum to help with your dissection, but most times you don't need to do that. Um, You just work from the non-perforated side, measure the length on that side. And then traditionally, people had used a windsock made of a synthetic material, either Gore-Tex, sometimes Dacron, to to surround the back part of the the, uh, device and to to essentially recapitulate the tunica. Um, With that, there's a little higher infection rate. So people have generally gone to a simpler technique. The most common is what's called a Wilson sling, after Dr. Wilson. It's a little tough to see in this picture, but the idea is basically you're throwing a stitch through the tunica, down through the proximal end of the device or the rear tip, and then back up through the tunica and sewing it in place to anchor it right there. Um, And that tends to work pretty well. Again, not an emergency, something you need to panic about. Now, something that is a little bigger deal is a urethral injury. So again, fortunately, these are rare, about 0.1 to, you know, some series claim up to 4%, although I I would argue for most experienced implanters, that's probably much less these days. But when it does happen, it tends to happen distally, which is a tougher area to fix. Um, you can generally identify this by irrigating the corporeal well after each dil- after um, you complete your dilation, and if you see me- uh, fluid coming out for the meatus, expect that you may have a urethral injury or something going on. Um, the general dictum that most people should follow is, if there's a urethral injury, abort, come away, and redo it another day. Um, for people who have done a lot of this, um, especially if it's a more proximal injury, um, there are people that talk about either replacing the contralateral cylinder, again, remember your, your Corporal anatomy, that they are in continuity. So you have to assure that things are closed. You have to ensure you have a watertight closure, if that's the case. Or you have to assure that your defect is small enough that either when they're urinating or with a fully catheter, that you're not going to have urine getting into that space to infect the device. And you have to know that if you do put a device in at that time, again, similar to before, you may preserve length and girth. But with this, with the urethra injury, there may be a higher rate of infections and complications. So something to be very cautious about. And again, distal injuries are difficult to fix at the same time. So again, most people will talk about aborting and coming back. And then one other interesting thing we always talk about is the SST deformity, or the supersonic transporter deformity, named after the Concorde jet, which is similar in appearance to here with the nose pointing down. Um, it tends to be when a guy will come in and tell you his glands is floppy. Um, most of the time, this is because the dilation did not necessarily go all the way up into the glands. So again, be really careful at the time of the procedure that you get it there if you can. Um, or it could just be that his corpora don't extend or give enough support to the glands. If you find that intraoperatively, certainly reassess, redilate, make sure you're as far up as possible. And there are a number of different glandsplasty techniques, if you are, um, where essentially you throw some stitches on, on the side, you know, anchor that to the back part of the glands behind the, uh, behind the corona, you know, on, you know, on both sides, whether you're using a single stitch to cross or multiple stitches. Um, so here's a guy we did not all that long ago who had a downward tilt that got sent to us. And again, after a simple glandsplasty technique, again, it's pretty straight and can get back to normal sexual activity. So again, I know you probably heard me talk of, enough for now, so I wanna open this up to a question. Um, so question one, um, related to some of the things we talked about is, at the time of prosthesis placement, there's a discrepancy in your measured corporal length. After attempted seating, the left-sided cylinder is extending into the mid gland, but on the right side, you can't get it up to that area and it's only going to the mid shaft. So what's your next step here? A, abort the procedure, B, downsize the device to one with a narrower base cylinders, C, place the dilator in the left-sided corpora and redilate the right, or D, create a proximal sling with throwing a stitch through the rear tip extender and putting it through the tunic.
0: To answer the question, um, you can either use the raise hand feature or type the answer into the chat. We have a couple people, um, Caleb, who are putting answers into the chat. The consensus seems to be option C.
1: Perfect, good. So so you all either knew it before or learned something, so beautiful. Um, so, yeah, this is a classic example of your distal crossover. So you place your, your dilators, um, similar to what you see here with two Hager's in. Not an emergency. You don't have to abort. Redilate the other side. And, again, if you need, go further up the shaft, find the area, you know, and, and place your cylinders the normal way. Good. Um, so getting on a little bit towards challenging cases, you know, I wanted to bring up three different things here. Um, people with priapism, um, neoglands, and people with Perone's disease. Again, I'm not going to get heavily into the of disease because I know you have other lectures on them. But again, these are things that do make the idea of surgical management a little more difficult. So again, um, priapism, as everyone knows, is a prolonged erection, usually lasting over four hours or that's painful. And if this goes on for long periods of time, you know, it can lead to erectile dysfunction. So it's one of the reasons why we tell people it's an emergency. They need to get in early so that we can take this down, reestablish blood flow. We know with increased time, you know, 12 hours, 24 hours, 36 hours, you know, there is more um, significant, you know, changes, edema, um, apoptosis, and eventually corporal fibrosis. And people will say that as time goes on, the rate of you returning to normal erections is lower. Um, So time is of the essence here. So even when guys joke around in the office that say, hey, you know, I wouldn't tell you about it. I'd tell all my buddies about it. You know, when this really does happen, it does become a big issue. Um, You know, people have have traditionally gone through the idea of aspiration irrigation, distal shunts. Um, Before, people had talked more about the idea of even doing proximal shunts. But nowadays, um, we realize that those have high rates of erectile dysfunction. And if you're going to have a high rate of erectile dysfunction in these cases, Uh, Most people have switched over to the idea of even at the time of the acute event in prolonged events or whenever shunts don't work Of putting in a prosthesis again as a placeholder um, And to prevent that significant fibrosis and contraction that guys get, you know If you do delay on this um, placement can be really challenging Um, You may require corporal excavation like we saw earlier and the complication rates including urethra injury and um, Need to remove the device do go way up Um, for any of you who don't know this picture is Priapus Priapus the god of horticulture and fertility in the Greek society, which um, I always think is an interesting picture. Um, so for patients with priapism, um, you will often see that they have gone undergone a distal shunt by the time you've decided to take him to the OR. This picture on the right is one of the guys that we were putting in. You can see the telltale signs of the T-shunt on his glands. And they often have significant edema, both in the penile shaft as well as the entire GU area. Um, so that does make it whenever you're passing something like a malleable, a higher chance that that could erode out those weak spots. Um, So again, this is a picture below of essentially showing um, somebody essentially um, the the technique for securing that, again, from the tunica through the device and out. Um, That can be done with all the device, or you can wrap the stitch around it depending on the type of device you have. For IPPs, that's a little easier because there is um, a tubing takeoff that comes out that you can wrap around, again, not too tightly to constrict it, but it will anchor the device a little bit more. Um, again, even in these situations, you know, the guy has been instrumented, they've had injections, they've had aspirations, there's even still a higher rate in these scenarios, but if you can get one in, um, certainly pre- uh, preserve some length and girth for guy. Um, when it comes to Peroni's disease, again, I think everybody knows that that is curvature that is acquired caused by scarring or plaque formation versus any of its other manifestations. Um, in these cases, it's really important to know that that's going on pre-op, and that's not always totally obvious just because the guy may not have got erections for a long time. So again, here, physical exam to feel for PLAT, which tends to be on the dorsum, but can be in other places. And in guys where you don't know, getting an intraoperative injection or an ultrasound to evaluate um, can really be really helpful for surgical planning. Um, Lots of options for this. With guys with milder curvature, you can consider device placement alone, especially with a more rigid device. Um, And then you can work your way up the ladder, anything from penile modeling, which is still used a lot today. Um, Plications, where you're essentially cinching down the side to to straighten it out to some degree. Again, the downside of that is is loss of length, um, versus incision and grafting techniques, where you're cutting into the plaque, allowing it to expand open and placing a graft. Although, again, then you're putting foreign material on foreign material that may have its own set of consequences. So, again, um, device selection is key in this. Um, When it comes to picking the right device, you do want to have one with intrinsic rigidity. Both companies make a good one for this. In the um, AMS and Boston Scientific one, it tends to be the CX devices. Um, the LGX ones that have length expansion don't tend to have the same intrinsic rigidity, so we tend to avoid them in coronies cases. And the coloplast titan can be used in these as well. Again, if you plan this carefully, you have to think about the order of operations you want to do it. If you know that a guy has significant rupture, um, if planning on placing ply suture, sometimes it needs to be able to go in and put, before you put the device in, put the device at risk. If you're planning on incision grafting and you can make that incision first, then sometimes you can actually put a bigger device in than if you put one in and size over it. So sometimes planning is really key here. Um, And then just a word on penile modeling, just because it's something that some people may not be familiar with. Um, Here's the picture from Dr. Wilson's initial article and he uh, came up with this technique. That basically involves essentially putting the device in, doing an erection with the device in, seeing that you still have curvature. Inflating the device maximally, then you shod the tubing on both sides to protect the um, The pump from pressures whenever you're you're snapping it um, You protect your corporatomies with one hand and then forcibly bend the, the penis against the level of the curve If you've never done it, it really will freak you out the first time a little bit um, You know for those of us who are surgeons you, you lack a little bit of control because you're, you're forcing it down and sometimes you will feel a cracking of that plaque a little bit you um, usually hold it for about 60 to 90 seconds, and then if need be, you add more fluid and do the same process. Again, you certainly can injure your corporotomies or break those down and have to repair them, and there is a report at least in early series 3 to 4% urethral injury, which is a devastating complication. So something really to be aware of and be concerned about. Um, the final challenging situation I wanted to bring up a little bit was the idea of placing these in a neophallus. Um, this is a little bit of a different ballgame and could be a whole other discussion, but just to give you the basics. Again, a lot of guys who are getting a neophallus either for gender-affirming surgery Um, for um, traumatic amputations, for cancer, whatever it may be, Um, you know, whatever they make the neophallus out of for um, usually a radial forearm free flap or lat dorsi is not going to usually have any intrinsic function that they can use for erection. Um, Some people have tried that, leaving a bone or tendons in, uh, but they tend to be a little less satisfactory. So if you are going to put a a device in a neophallus, um, again, you're not putting it into the standard corpora, and you're basically dilating a space out into that free flap after it's healed. Most of the time that's done in a single stage, but can be done in in a staged fashion, and lots of reasons why that can be a challenge. Um, The blood supply can be challenging because it's coming in from the side, and it's a little less defined where it goes into the neophallus, Um, and again, if people have had scars, if they've had fistulas or or strictures, um, all of that can lead to more challenging dilation. Um, The procedure is generally not done until a period of time after healing, usually about 6 to 12 months later after the phalloplasty. The idea is you want to wait till return of sensation. So if you're putting the device in and they're returning to sexual activity, you know, whenever they're putting more pressure between the skin and the device, they have less chance of breaking it down. Um, nowadays, most of these will be three-piece devices, but you can use either malleables or three-piece. Just like anyone else, there is less mechanical risk with a malleable prosthesis. But again, it's not anchored well into these, into these individuals, so um, there is a higher risk of erosion. Um, again, depending on the width that you have of, of the neophallus to work with, it can be either a single, or dual cylinder. So you can either put one or two on both sides. Again, you'll get more stability with the dual cylinder, but again, a little bit more risk. And again, for most of these guys, you'll put some sort of neotunical sock around this—a Gore-Tex, a Dacron, something—to essentially recapitulate what the corporal would be, using it to anchor it to um, the ischiopubic ramus, you know, and also to provide some cushion on the distal end. So again, technical considerations, um, you know, the pump can generally be placed in the scrotum or neoscrotum, um, on the one side, especially if there's no testicle on that side and the pump for some guys will feel like a testicle. Alternatively, you can put in one or both testicular prostheses. And again, depending on how, you know, you decide to do your neophallus, if you're doing that with your plastic surgeons or not, you know, sometimes the timing of this will be depending on the stages of the neophallus they'll do. So sometimes you can put in a reservoir early to let it to heal. Other times people will do it all at the same time, and then you can make any adjustments you need at the time to do the glands class. So again, as you would expect, higher complication rates in a neophallus, higher rates of infection, um, probably go down a little with experience, but um, again, still definitely there. Higher rates of failure, um, and certainly higher rates of things like urethral injury, including you know badness like flap loss. Again, even with that, many of the men who get these are satisfied, um, depending on the series and you know depending on the way they ask the question, up to 88% satisfaction, which is great. Again, not everybody is necessarily using these for sexual intercourse, but sometimes it gives more form and more function to the neophallus, can help them with urination, any of those things too. So lots of reasons to consider it. And then again, I won't go a lot into the new design, but need, needless to say, both the companies that are making these currently, as well as several other companies, are working on different designs, different techniques, different technologies, and within the course of all of our lifetimes, you know, one of the exciting things is I'm sure we'll continue to see more more excitement you know, in terms of the development of these. So the one on the right is a picture of a model that I think was started around 2015 in Wisconsin that was a heat-sensitive model. Again, hasn't you know, made it you know, big time yet, but something you know, that was sort of an interesting idea. People are working on specific devices for neophalluses with more distal cushioning and a wider, broader base so that, again, in a guy that has a neophalus, there may be less pressure onto that area. And the pre-existing companies, Coloplast and AMS, are both working on differences or changes to their pumps. One good is just the current model's battery, something that people will even be using through their iPhones in the, in the future. So let's go on to question two. Um, so, again, just to break this up a little, you have a 68 year old gentleman who desires penile prosthesis placement. When you're talking to him and examining preoperatively, he has a bothersome 60 degree upward curvature, um, which is uh, with a dorsally placed plaque on exam. He seems to have good dexterity and really prefers an inflatable device. Um, so, what would be the most appropriate device to plan for it? A, a malleable prosthesis. B, a two-piece penile prosthesis, three, a uh, Boston Scientific LGX device, or D, either a Coloplast Titan or a Boston Scientific CX device.
0: Seems that the most common answer is D, although I did see a few C's in there as well.
1: Good, so again, um, D is generally the correct answer here. Again, no one would totally fault you for some of those other choices. But again, in a Peyronie's case, especially with a guy with a significant plaque, um, you're gonna wanna consider one with more internal rigidity. So again, that tends to be either the Titan or the CX device if you're using AMS or or Boston Scientific. Um, So again, those devices in and of themselves can help straighten these erections. Certainly more preferable if you're gonna use things like modeling. Um, Again, a malleable can be used in guys with Peyronie's, but again, it may be less satisfying, especially in a guy like this. Um, And certainly anybody that has, say, a calcified plaque or something, you know, any of these devices aren't going to model against that completely, and you're going to need to use some injective techniques. So yeah, D is the answer for that. one. And then again, I, I just want to spend the last few minutes that we have here um, going over some of the other techniques that you may hear about for um, erectile dysfunction surgery, and those are the vascular surgery techniques. Again, way less common than penile prosthesis, but do come up in select cases. So um, one of the things that may happen, especially for young guys um, and younger guys with traumatic injuries, are um, basically arterial occlusive disease. Um, So this can happen simply with vascular issues too, but if a guy has more significant peripheral vascular disease, if a guy is older or if he has other things going on, he still may not be a great candidate for this. But um, in general, if you suspect that a guy had, say, a traumatic injury or a clot or something that is causing his erectile dysfunction, um, generally the workup starts with a penile duplex ultrasound. You'll look and basically see what the arterial flow is into the penis and what his velocities are. Um, If that's concerning, then most of the time, people will go on to selective either angiography or a CT angiogram to, again, try to define that anatomy a little better, see if there are occlusions, see if there is something that can be targeted. And if you're considering surgery, most people even consider cavernosometry, um, basically to try to rule out veno-occlusive disease as either a a concomitant cause or an additional cause. Um, This is from a nice review paper out of Dr. Levine's group and Dr. Mori's group, just talking about some of the the things that they thought were were better ways to get technical success with this. Again, there have been a lot of series that have looked at these, um, so it tends to, when it does work, work better for younger guys who, who have absent risk factors, who really have an identifiable place that can be targeted. Um, the more of those things stack up against you, the more the guy just may be a better candidate for something like a penile prosthesis. If you are considering techniques or considering revascularization, um, generally the idea is to use microvascular techniques. Um, so um, the preferred arterial insource is usually the inferior epigastric. And um, you as a reconstructive urologist may be involved with the harvesting of those vessels. Um, And then usually, again, not many of us are trained in microvascular surgery. So this will often be done either with a vascular surgeon or a plastic surgeon. And they'll do a vascular anastomosis between the inferior epigastric and either the dorsal penile and or the cavernosal arteries. Again, those tend to be much smaller arteries that vascularize the the cavernosum um, and the penis off of the common penile from the internal iliac. Um, And again, that could be to one or both Um, some people will take the internal epigastric and just due to the deep dorsal vein again Trying to get retrograde flow into there and again There are a a number of studies that our IR colleagues have looked at looking at angioplasty and stenting Um, This tends to work better in higher up lesions Um, as you get down into the smaller more distal vessels It can be a little bit more challenging But something people have considered and depending on the series you're looking at um, You're generally looking at wide ranges of success anywhere from 36 to 91 percent Again, depending on your definition on how things were done. Um, Finally, when it comes to veno-occlusive disease, um, you know, again, that's usually diagnosed on ultrasound or cavernosometry. Again, be really careful if you do use those techniques because especially for a younger guy, a hyperadrenergic state, you know, so a guy who's anxious during the study, who's got a lot of people around, who's nervous, you know, those can lead to, you know, the same appearance on the studies as venous leak as your body is shunting blood out of the, you know, out of the penis into other parts of the body. So careful with your results unless either you're doing them or a good ultrasonographer is doing them with you. Um, again, for the AUA guidelines, surgery is not recommended right now in these cases. Um, people have tried ligation of the veins or the tributaries. But again, to this point, success rates have been low with pretty high complication rates. So again, they still can be considered in clinical research studies, but not something you usually want to offer people. So generally going down the standard pathway and then considering something like a penile prosthesis if those aren't working. So last question, um, a 70-year-old smoker comes into you, he has a history of diabetes and hypertension, he undergoes an angiogram with his vascular surgeon to look at his peripheral vascular disease, and this showed a incidental narrowing of the common penile arteries bilaterally. He has long-standing erectile dysfunction, he has failed multiple other options, he has failed PD-5 inhibitors, vacuum devices, and multiple different ICIs. So he comes to you and says, hey, I've got this study, take a look at it, you know, what's the best thing that I can I can do going forward to help me reestablish my erection? So is that A, penile prosthesis surgery, B, balloon angioplasty, C, a micro, microvascular shunting, or D, um, starting him back over on a trial of a different PD 5 inhibitor?
0: The majority of people are going with A.
1: Awesome. You guys are on top of it. So again, this guy is older, he's got multiple comorbidities, he's tried a lot of other stuff. You know, again, the, the chance of a bilateral microvascular procedure working out well for him are, are pretty limited. So. He's a guy that going back and restarting on, you know, oral medications probably is not going to buy him much. You know, most of the PD-5 inhibitors do similar stuff and work in similar ways. And he's a guy that's likely to benefit from prosthesis. So, again, in conclusion, um, just a couple of things to think about. Surgical management of ED is, is highly effective, but you have to tailor it to the right patient and the right procedure. Um, just like, you know, in your lecture you had on, on stress urinary incontinence and pr- um, prostheses there, Um, Counseling and expectation management in these quality of life surgeries is super, super important. And the more time you put in early to to get that right with the patients, the less you'll have to go back and explain on the downside. Um, Again, the surgeries are are pretty straightforward. As you know, many probably PGY2s and 3s in this room feel pretty comfortable doing it. Um, So I always say it's straightforward until it's not. You know, and there are a lot of things that can go wrong with the different steps of these. So it's important if you're going to do these procedures to have an extensive surgical toolkit, to address either complications or get yourself out of sticky situations, the little details in the surgeries are what make the big difference here. So um, they're incredibly important. And again, even though we use vascular surgical techniques a little bit less, um, they should be somewhere in your toolbox and something really to consider in selected cases with the right and extensive workup. Um, so, with that, I will leave it open to uh, any questions from the group. I will say that, um, you know, I know this was a really broad overview. Um, For many of us who do these kind of surgeries and reconstruction, we tend to be pretty passionate about what we do. So, I know we didn't cover a lot of all of it today, but if you do have questions, you know, feel free to reach out to me anytime. might take me a little while to get back to you, but I promise I will. And if you want to call anytime, we can call and we can talk through sticky situations or, you know, some of the, you know, more technical details, you know. And if you were to hear this talk from someone else, don't be surprised if some of these details would be a little different. When it comes to prosthesis and reconstruction, um, we don't have a ton of high-level evidence. If you've read the AUA guidelines, the the different techniques and things you may see. So again, thank you so much to everyone for putting this together, for having me, for giving up an hour of your time. Um, It seems like hopefully we're getting better and better news, at least in Philadelphia, on returning to life as normal. So hopefully um, we'll get a chance to see each other in person sometime and not have to to keep doing stuff like this. But thank thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks so much, Caleb. Fantastic talk as always, um, incorporating both the basics and some challenging situations as well. We do have quite a few questions, um, so I think we can spend the next eight minutes or so reviewing uh, some of them. The first one is, what is your HBA1C cutoff for um, placing an IPP?
1: Yeah, so I've actually gone on a little stricter with this. Um, in fellowship, it was about 9. When I first came back, I used about 8.5. Now I tend to use more around the 8 level. Um, again, the evidence for this is all over the board. There are studies that do suggest that as that number goes up from around a baseline of 5 or 5.5, you see a slow takeoff, and then you see higher rates of infection. There are some that basically suggest that both hemoglobin A1c and preoperative glucose have very little to do with, you know, our infections after. Um, I tend to, one, think that we urologists are also medical doctors in some way, too, beyond just being surgeons, and that it's our opportunity for a guy to prove to me that he can, you know, take the initiative, just like in a bariatric surgery, you know, taking care of himself, making sure he's going to be doing all the right stuff here. And again, theoretically, to me, it just makes sense that a guy that has better control is going to do better. Uh, We do know the rates of infection are higher in diabetic guys, and um, so I'm hesitant when they're much higher than eight. Um, I will consider going over that in selective cases, but um, I usually use somewhere between 8 or 8.5. But again, if you talk to a million different reconstructive or or andrologists, um, you'll, you'll hear a lot of different numbers for that.
0: The next set of questions have to do with uh, the placement of prostheses and um, priapism. The first is why do you see an increased risk of infection in this population and is the infection risk any different um, with early versus delayed IPV placement?
1: Yeah those are great questions. We again we we have not yet to define this all we have are some series on this as of now it's never been studied rigorously But the infection rate is probably higher because you're doing this on an early side whenever people have had a significant amount of penile manipulation. You know, for anybody who's done priapism takedowns, you know that you're essentially sticking needles in, you're injecting vasoactive agents, you're irrigating, you're aspirating different things, you're putting lots of stuff in. And then many of these guys have had shunts. So again, you're now opening from the outside to the inside, potentially introducing, you know, bacteria into that space. Um, So we're putting this in at a time whenever that space has been violated. So that is. At least my my conceptual thought is why the infection may be higher. Now, it also may be higher because some of those shunts haven't totally healed yet. There's still a connection between other places. There could have been urethral injuries or other things as well. But again, you know, you haven't given any of that time to wash out. Um, Is the the infection rate higher earlier on than in a delayed fashion? You know, we all think maybe. But again, the complication rate of these delayed prostheses is, is certainly high and is all over the board. So again, you're oftentimes talking about doing things like extensive corporal either dilations or excavations. You know there are higher rates of things like urethral injuries. Um, so again, I I don't know that one is clearly different than the other, but at least some of the studies I've seen, there seems to be maybe a little bit higher rate early on um, than taking it out, letting things or I'm sorry, than waiting till things cool down. But again, given the the other types of complications you have it and putting it in a delayed fashion, you know it, it's sort of debatable. You know kind of what, what your priorities are for and which way you go. Um,
0: what is your definition of early placement in this population? And um, can you talk a little bit about your preoperative evaluation?
1: The preoperative evaluation in a priapism case? Yes. Yeah. Um, so early placement, I think, can be anywhere from essentially, you, you know, really early on. So some people will say that if you, if a guy comes in and he's had priapism, say for five days, you know and it's been up that whole time no matter what the chance of you getting him down with an aspiration or irrigation is almost zero even the chance of you getting him ha- down and any sort of later erectile dysfunction with a shunt um is, is probably close to zero now there are some studies that suggest at least that um in a select group of patients up to maybe 24 or 36 hours with an aggressive dilation of the corpora you may recover some of that but if a guy's been up for a while you may consider putting it in right away you know during that same hospitalization Um, I would also consider guys that go home, you know, still have issues, come back and see you early and say, listen, I'm ready. I'll do it, you know, within the first week or two to be relatively early on. Um, Even when you go to do them, the dilation is often a little bit crunchier already. There tends to be more scarring already beginning to set in. Um, And then I would consider a delayed placement sometime after, you know, six weeks um, into perpetuity um, when, when that scar has really started forming in a much more rigorous way. Um, I have put these in in guys five ten years after a significant event and again you go in and in some guys The dilation is actually much simpler than you would think in other guys um, You know you literally have a wedge of scar that fills the entire corpora So my pre-op workup is essentially to, to do a good physical exam, exam on them to feel what's going on If they're seeing you in a delayed fashion I mean you could always consider a penile ultrasound to better define the scar to at least know You know to have a better sense of what you're going into But if you got, if you're gonna take these guys to the OR Um, You need to be prepared with things like Rosellios, you know, corporal drills if you use them, the the possibility of needing to do an excavation or even a repair of the corpora itself, um, and they can be really challenging cases.
0: Great, thanks. Um, Now moving towards uh, Peyronie's disease, um, can you talk a little bit about preoperative testing that you might get in this specific um, population? A couple people asked about an ultrasound um, and, and things like that.
1: Yeah, Again, I think it's person dependent a little bit, and it depends on what you're trying to do and what the patient's goals are. If a guy has a small plaque, on ultrasound, and he has 15 degree curvature and says, hey, you know, it's not bothering me right now. It's really more my erectile dysfunction that's bothering me. You know, again, in that guy, do I feel like every single guy needs a penile ultrasound before? I, I don't. I know a lot of people would argue with me on that and say that anybody with peronis or even anybody who you're going to do a prosthesis does. But again, I've rarely found that, if, you know, that it changes my practice in those guys. In a guy with a more extensive plaque or a more extensive curvature, that's when I'm really considering doing it. Um, one, I want to see if the, if the plaque is calcified, because if it is, I know that my device is much less likely to correct it on its own. It also means that i'm going to be less likely to correct things with you know simple modeling techniques or plication and those might be the guys that you need a good plaque excision on Um, i think i may have skipped it on my thing but one of the pictures was actually a 10 centimeter plaque with a shark fin going down into the guy's corpora that we had taken out and again in those cases you have to be ready to sort of rebuild the corpora and so that might that was a guy that we did with a uh, circumcising incision and degloving rather than planning a you know a penis grotal incision and then a second circumcising incision um, so, in a guy where I think it may alter my surgical management, um, I, I'll get it. In a guy where I, I think it's unlikely to do much, um, you know, especially a small plaque and left degree of the curvature, I, I don't feel that it's super necessary in every in every case. I think
0: we have time for one or two more. Um, if, in during the process of modeling, how do you best detect a urethral injury, and what do you do if one is detected? Do you, would you remove the whole device?
1: Yeah, so again, great question. Um, it's a little tougher because the device is already in, so you're not really irrigating. So again, you need a high degree of suspicion for these. Again, your rethrow injuries in modeling tend unfortunately not to be um, not to be real subtle. I'm gonna knock on wood that I've never seen one, at least in real life. So um, I, I you know, but usually you're gonna either see the device extrude through there or you should check the meatus and just make sure that you're not seeing a device, you know, or anything poking into that area. Um, if I saw that at the time, I would, you know, I would take the device out, you know, especially for a, uh, a inflatable prosthesis. I, I personally would consider putting a malleable in the other side. Um, people have described the idea of creating a hypospadius, so going down, you know, opening the distal end and then using that to over-sow, um the uh, to oversew the urethra and get a watertight closure. Um, I would be super hesitant to do that in a guy just because, again, if a guy woke up with a, a hypospadias, I think he'd probably be even more concerned, you know, with something you didn't talk to him about, but it is one potential option. Um, you know, you could just take the device out and come back another day, which, again, I think if you're not doing a lot of these, is probably the safest option. Uh, but Dr. Mohal, um, Dr. actually, if you, if you read the chapter in Campbell's in this edition, you know, does talk about the idea that, again, a lot of these holes that you'll see from dilation are small enough that you don't need to have a fully catheter in, that they'll basically close on their own from pressure I think if you get that from um, essentially extrusion after modeling, that's probably not gonna be the case. You're gonna see a bigger hole, and those are guys that either you would have to close up or you should be really, really careful about leaving a device in, just because you're gonna have a connection between your urethra and your corpora.
0: Thanks again, uh, Caleb. Couple more questions that we can post on the website, Um, but you know, fantastic talk as always.
1: Great, thank you everybody for being here. Again, feel free to reach out if there's anything I can help you with, and, uh, and good luck with everything.
0: Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website urologycovid.ucsf.edu.